Uh, let's turn together in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're uh, going through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And this morning we're going to start chapter 2. Uh, if you're here this morning you don't have a Bible with you, we have some uh, in the rack by the sound booth in the back. Please uh, join us in reading Scripture and studying Scripture together this morning. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take it home with you as our gift to you as we find the Word of God to be immensely important in our day-to-day lives. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, and verses, uh, starting in, right in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of, us, each of us in his own native language? May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. We're going to be talking about tongues today. I know that excites all of you. Even little Cece reached over and said to my wife, tongues? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be talking about it. Yeah, tongues. So we began a new series in the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, called Spirit-Empowered Mission. If you're new here, we like to go through books of the Bible. If you've missed any sermons, you can go back, download them, or get them podcasts. You can actually watch the video on uh, our website, kingschapel.net. But we are in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first part, a very important passage of Scripture together in verses 1 through 14. Uh, I'll pray and then we'll get to work. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this historical record of it. Thank you uh, for uh, allowing and sending Dr. Luke a, 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 a time that we can know what took place on that very special, important day in, in history of the world, Lord. We pray that as we open up Scripture, oh Lord, that we would encounter Jesus, that he would get glory and honor, and Father, you would send your Spirit, and he would open our hearts and minds to bring glory to him, and that, Father, together we will seek your face and live on mission with you. Uh, Father, it's not simply that you saved us from sin, death, and hell, but you have sent us into the world as good missionaries. And Lord, we pray that uh, your spirit would empower us to do just that, and we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, volume 2, really, of one book. Dr. Luke, Paul calls him the beloved physician, Um, and it is the second volume of the one book, Luke the author of Acts also wrote the gospel according to Luke. And according to Luke, chapter 1, it says that he carefully researched his material. He was a doctor. He, he, he interviewed witnesses. Um, he wrote down all that took place in the life, the death, the resurrection, and really the ascension of Jesus so that this man named Theophilus, who uh, means lover of God, might have an accurate and an orderly account of that which took place in the life of Jesus. The Gospel according to Luke is volume 1, and it's about all that Jesus did, all that he began to do and teach until the day of his ascension. Luke makes it clear in Acts chapter 1. The second book, Acts, is all about what Jesus continues to do and what Jesus continues to teach through the apostles and the church. And Acts is really a book about the mission of God. 
It's the acts of the living Christ, the reigning king, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he loves, forgives, and redeems all of mankind. That's the gospel story. Jesus, the God-man, comes into the universe, into the world, lives a perfect life without sin, fulfills the law totally and completely, went to the cross, dies in our place as our Savior, as our substitute, takes the wrath of God that we deserve, three days later, rises from the grave, victorious over sin, death, and hell. He appears to many, not resuscitated, but actually resurrected with with a glorified sense where he's never going to die again. And he shows himself, Acts tells us, Luke tells us, to, to many people over, over 40 days, 500 people got this, at least in one sitting, got to see Jesus. There were those who ate with Jesus. There were those who talked with Jesus. Uh, he demonstrated his resurrection by all these many, many proofs that he really is alive. And we saw last week that in um, the last verses of Luke in the beginning of Acts, that Jesus tells him before he ascends to wait to go to Jerusalem, to wait in Jerusalem. No, don't, don't start ministry yet, but wait, because verse 8 of chapter 1 says, you'll receive power, so wait for this power, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. When he does, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it'll start at home in your community. It, it, it'll go to your, your county, your state, and then to all the nations of the world. And in obedience... The disciples and the apostles listen, and for 10 days we find them worshiping together, meeting in large places, meeting in small places, in the temple, in the upper room. They walk together in unity, we saw last week. They were one-minded. They, have, they have, you know, walked in one accord. They were one-minded. They prayed together. They even studied the Bible get together as they gathered together and to reformulate the leadership team. Judas had killed himself. They needed to replace Judas. And they prayed and they sought the face of God. They read scripture and they picked Matthias. But they're waiting for this power. Just as Jesus was empowered when he was baptized, the Bible says that the Spirit came down and empowered Jesus to to be in mission, to live and and work and to do the things of God, the Father. Um, And and we too, he says, we got to wait. John 14, 14 says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will, the Holy Spirit, take what Jesus says and he will glorify Jesus. So they're to wait, to be received power, to be witnesses about Jesus. So turn to Acts chapter 2. And some would say that Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, is what would be considered the birth of the church. And, and, And that's true in some sense, but it's really not completely true. Or it's not complete. It's not that it's not completely true. It's, it's true. But it's not completely uh, everything. Because in the Old and New Testament, the church, ecclesia, the called out ones, are seen uh, from, from the days of Abraham even. He called out Abraham and his family. He called together the 12 tribes. He called out the nation. They were to be a witness to his grace and to his mercy and, and to his goodness. And they were, they were men and women looking toward the, for the redemption of Jesus, the called out assembly. But what makes this unique in chapter 2 of of Acts is how the Old Testament saints who were saved by grace through faith, looking toward the cross, uh, become the New Testament people of God known as the Christian church. And here we see the Spirit descending, coming, you know, just descending and coming down, sealing believers, eternally sealing believers, and filling them with transforming power and sending them out into the world, uh, sort of like a reboot of the people of God. In the fullness of the Spirit. So this morning we're going to look at Pentecost. 
there is no way for me to overstate how important, how important the day of Pentecost is in the world. Changed everything. Changed everything. More than we could ever discuss or imagine. So we'll look at Pentecost through three lenses or through three, three headings. One is out of power. Out of power, the power of God. Second is through inner presence, the inner presence of God. And finally, through the external proclamation. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. All right? Out of power, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, follow me in your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a loud a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Luke makes it clear that it was the day of Pentecost. A very important, Pentecost didn't come just because of the church. It's not a New Testament thing, right? So the day of Pentecost was very important in the life uh, and the times of Israel. Pente was an annual Jewish feast uh, that was called the, the Feast of Weeks or the Festival of Weeks or the Festival of the First Fruits. It was, it was the time of the Pentecost. Pente meaning 50th. So it was, it was seven weeks after uh, the Passover, seven weeks, 49 days, plus one, 50. Pentecost it was a time of celebrating uh, uh, the, the, the festivals. And this one was the Festival of First Fruits, or the Festivals of Pentecost. It was actually very strategic. If you don't know anything about the, uh, Israel and the nation of Israel, their festivals were a huge part of their life. It was who they were. And they gathered with three major festivals from, from Passover to what they called the, fest, uh, the Festival of Tabernacles, or the, the Feast of Booths. And they had three major festivals that they gathered together. And in the middle was this Pentecost. Uh, the Feast of Booths is when they gathered together and they commemorated the, the, when they were wandering, they built shelters for themselves. But the major, major festivals in the life of the church. Now, the day of Pentecost is very important, especially in Jesus' day, and it commemorated three things. First, it commemorated the law that was given to the people through Moses, and we'll get back to that. Second, it was also a time where the Israelites would gather in festivals, thanksgiving, you know, a, a thankful offering to God for their, their harvest. And thirdly, it was because it was a time of celebrating first fruits. First fruits, the first fruits. Now, first fruits is really important for a couple reasons. One is that festival, the festival of, of first fruits, the festival of Pentecost, is the same, okay? Is that every Israelite was manda- mandated to leave wherever they were and to come to Jerusalem. Three times a year, including Pentecost. First fruits, they were to go wherever they were and they were come to Jerusalem, okay? Which would make sense because later on we'll see that every nation was represented there. There was Jews from all over the world. So God in his infinite wisdom brought all these people together, Jewish people from all over to Jerusalem for this festival so that when the Holy Spirit descends upon them, they are filled with the Holy Spirit declaring the mighty things of God, which we will see, and then they're sent back to be missionaries all over the world. So God brings them together, fills them with power and the Spirit, and sends them out into the world. Uh, very important. The second thing that the Feast of, of, of Pentecost, or the Feast of First Fruits, was in, in this day, because in the Jewish life, they would gather for these festivals as a way to demonstrate their, their, their love and God's faithfulness to them, okay? 
their love and God's faithfulness toward them. Leviticus 23, this is in the context of this festival. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf, the bundle, of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Bring it to the temple as an offering, first fruits of the harvest to the priest. And he says, And he, the priest, shall wave the sheaf, the bundle, before the Lord so that you may be accepted. So the first fruits, this Pentecost was a time that God's people demonstrated their love for him because God's love has been demonstrated to them as he provided for them the first fruits. What this was to them, and I I want you to see this, was they would harvest the first fruits and they would bring it to the temple as as to say, Lord, you have given us the first fruits and we trust you for the rest of the harvest. I will give you the first of the fruits, I will give you the best and the first because you have been faithful, you have been blessing us, we trust you, and this is an act of trust and obedience that the rest of the harvest will come. That's the day that God chose to send forth his spirit. The Apostle Paul picks up on that, on that, on that, on that uh, you know, time of worship for them. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that because Jesus Christ truly, literally rose from the dead, that he now, Jesus, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in other words, Jesus rose from the grave and his resurrection is the first fruits that the rest of us are guaranteed, guaranteed to have. More will come. Because Jesus is the first, fruit, first fruits of the resurrection that we too will be resurrected from the dead. And the Bible says that on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended upon the believers and in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, on that same day, 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus. 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus. And God has been God is saying, listen, that's the first fruits. God is adding more and more and more and more people to his kingdom through the Lord Jesus Christ every day. We're part of that. You're part of that. As God continues to seek and save the lost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is is an extraordinary work of God. And it's meant for witness and world evangelism to the great field of harvest in the world. And we see that God has started and continues to do that. Luke says, look with me in Acts 2, that they were all together in one place. Could it have been the upper room? It probably was. We don't know. Was it the same 120 people that we looked at last week? We don't know. We're not really sure. Probably was. But where they were and the number of people is secondary to what takes place next. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven, underline that in your Bible, from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Like a mighty wind. We don't know if there was actual air flowing through the place. It was like the wind. But either way, look where does it come from. It comes from heaven. Another way of saying it's coming from God. And I'll tell you that every religion and every other philosophy that you will hear about, you will receive and you need power from the inside, not from the outside. Right? We sadly believe this. We think that we can drill deep within us and find the right path with our own strength and with our own power. And sadly, some of us parents feed that nonsense to our children as well. And we call it self-esteem. 
The way to wholeness we hear today is self-identity, loving and caring and accepting yourself. Here's the problem. We're sinners. We're sinners, and so are our children. The Bible says that all have sinned, that from my mother's womb I've sinned. You know, on the day of Pentecost, in Jesus' day, the priest would bring two loaves of bread. The loaves would be made from the wheat that was just from the first harvest. And you know what was different about that bread than most of the other bread? It had leaven in it. Leaven is a symbol of sin. As if to say, there'll always be sin until Jesus comes back. There'll always be sin until Jesus comes back. The truth is, it's not from within. We can't fix ourselves. We say things like, don't let them bother you. Don't, don't, don't let anyone judge you. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what other people think. Find the power within. Love yourself. And what always happens? We're always looking outwardly. And that's why the old children's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Names will never harm me. That's a lie. Tell that to a daughter. Tell that to a young girl who's been told she's fat and ugly all her life. Or to a dude that say, you know what? You'll never amount to nothing. Look at you. And tell me that doesn't hurt. Of course it does. Of course it does. And what happens is we we search within. And what we start doing, we start comparing ourselves to everybody else. And we look at that person who's broken down and and doesn't work hard and is a a bum in the street. We say, I'm better than him. Well, then what we do is we look at so-and-so. They got their life together. Look look at all their kids. Oh, they look so nice. And they say, oh, you know what? I could never amount to anything. And the problem is we're using the wrong measuring stick. Yes, it is, never tr- it is true. We can't reach in. We can't fix ourselves. And yes, we're always looking outward, comparing ourselves with others. And, we, and what happens is we, get, we become the super spiritual superiority complex. Look at me. Look how good I am. They, look how bad they are. Or we're like, um, you know, we try to live up this standard and, 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 and we, we do. And we have this standard. And we say, you know, look how great I am. Well, then we look at others and we have this inferiority and we just say, you know what, I'll never amount to anything. And the same questions come from the same root, and it's pride. Now, listen to me, family. Our worth is not derived from measuring up to others or to some sort of standard. Self-worth, value, satisfaction, meaning, purpose is not what you do. It's ultimately connected to who you are. We're always looking outward. What we need, if we're just honest, what we need is someone from the outside to see us, to accept us, to love us, to tell us that we matter. And on the day of Pentecost, the divine power came down and said those things. It's not a psychological answer. It's a God answer. Our culture says you, can, you, you have what it takes to make you whole, and God is saying, no, you do not, but I do. I have the power I have the power. In fact, in our text, the word, uh, the Hebrew word for wind is, and, and the corresponding Greek word pneuma, ra, is, is used of the Holy Spirit. They knew it was the power of God. I'm convinced they knew that it was God's power coming down. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel uses the word, the Hebrew word ra, wind, breath, as he, as he looks over the, the field of dry bones. Maybe you know the story. It was dead Israel. They had rebelled, they had sinned against God. And, and, and he looks out and all of a sudden, Ezekiel sees the, the bones coming together and the skin being attached. And, and God tells him to speak. And Ezekiel says this, Come from the four winds, O breath. 
and breathe into these slains, the bones. And they will live. They came to life, he says, and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. Look at that picture of the life of God, the power of God. And at Pentecost, the reviving winds of the Spirit come upon the apostles and give them life and power. We're not the center of the universe. We're not the center of the universe. We can't solve our own problems. We cannot change our own hearts. If you're trying, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a mice on a wheel. You'll never get any place because the power doesn't come from inside us. It comes from God. And the baptism of the Spirit, which we'll look at more detail, signifies God's power given to us. It's the gift of God coming from above to make us whole what we would never otherwise be. It's out of power. Will it hurt when people speak and say those things? Yes. Can it destroy us? No. Why? Because the God who knows me greater than any of you loves me cares for me and thinks I'm special. Thinks you're special. Will I look at others and say, you know, I, I, I'm, look at me, I'm so spiritual. Yeah. But then I got to look at the cross. Then I got to look at the cross and realize that the cross, at the cross, the playing field has been leveled. There is no one righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. They're but filthy rags. Isaiah 46. The gospel of Jesus Christ dismantles our self-esteem by showing us how wicked we are. Yet on the other hand, it, it, it shows us the ultimate value and worth is not in self-promotion. It's in confessing our need for God. And then having his loving intervention and his loving power so that we can see and savor the fact that we are loved, forgiven, received, accepted, and precious to God. Baptism of the Spirit, the outer power. Verse 2, inward presence. A sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. Verse 3, and divided tongues of fire fell, excuse me, fire appeared to them and rested on how many? Each one of them. The coming of the Spirit described here in three carefully construed or constructed corresponding statements. A sound came, it filled the house. Tongues appeared, sat on each one of them. They were filled with the Spirit, and what happened? They began to speak in tongues. It was audible, visible, and manifested itself by demonstrating in speech, and everyone knew what was happening. Well, some didn't. We'll see that in a minute. So the wind, the Spirit of God, is not only the power, but here, and we'll see in the Old Testament, and I think the people in that day knew exactly what was going on, it's also a recognition of the presence of God. Not just the power of God, but, but the presence of God. I'll go way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was what? Void? Formless and empty? Darkness was over the face of the deep? And what? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, that Hebrew word hovering is used of an eagle who spread her wings to protect her young or an eagle who spread her wings to, to protect her eggs. The description here is that the Spirit of God is, 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 is spreading his wings. He's, he's a personal being, loving, caring, and, and caring for his creation, ready and preparing to create. Not a force, but a person. God's breath, God's creative, moving, dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. We see that with, with the wind, with the, with the breath, with the Holy Spirit of God. But you know what else was there? It was not only a wind, 
but it was fire. Look at our text, it's fire. It was fire, rested on them. In the Old Testament, when God showed up, and I mean like God really showed up, there was fire. There was fire. Genesis 15, we studied that uh, a year ago. You remember that very, very important uh, chapter. It's when Abraham, and God comes to Abraham, makes a covenant with him. Genesis 15. And God tells Abraham, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to get a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And I want you to cut and sacrifice the animal and I want you to lay the pieces side by side with space in between, he tells him. Okay? Bring that to me. Lay them side by side. This is how covenants were made in that day. Today we get, you know, 10 lawyers at 100,000 apiece, and they do the covenant. But back then, they would cut an animal, split it, separate it, and this would be the ritual. And what would happen is they would walk through, they would walk through the pieces as, as a demonstration, as almost like an actor in a play, to say, look, this is what will happen to me if I do not keep my part of the covenant. Sort of like when Tessio brings Luca Brazzi's bulletproof vest. You know the story. Inside is a fish. And Sonny's like, what the hell is this? Pardon me, that's what he says. And Clemens is like, ah, it's a Sicilian message. It means Luca Brazzi what? Sleeps with the fish. If you don't keep your covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. I don't think they got it from here, but I, I know the movie. But anyway, so in Genesis 15, all of a sudden, same story. Abraham goes to sleep. Walls out, night comes, and what happens? A smoking fiery pot and a blazing torch pass between the pieces. It is, the, it is the manifestation of God. It is the Shekinah glory of God. It is what is called a theophany, a tangible manifestation of God himself comes and, and, and makes this covenant, one-sided covenant with Abraham. In Exodus 19, Moses goes to the mountain to receive the commandments of God. It says that the mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. It's a pillar of fire, Exodus 30, excuse me, 13, that guides the Israelites through the wilderness. How did God appear? In what way did God appear to Moses when he said, I am who I am in a burning bush? In a burning bush. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel gets the call of God. There's fire everywhere. You can read the text. There's fire everywhere. Many times in the Old Testament when fire came down and God's presence was really there, like he was showing up, there was fear, even death. Even death. But here on Pentecost, every believer becomes a burning bush. The glory and the presence of God, which at times was fatal, rested not on one of them, not even just on the apostles, but all believers. The intimacy, the presence of God rested on them all. When the Holy Spirit came down and Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And do you know when the Spirit of God comes into our life, it says the same thing. Romans 8 tells us, we did not, spirit of, uh, we did not, we received the spirit of adoptions where we cry out, Abba, Dad, Pop, Intimacy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God's intimate, personal, powerful presence in our life. 
Thomas Goodwin, he's a 17th century English Puritan, Puritan and theologian. He illustrates this, this intimacy with God with a story. He says this. A man and his little child are walking down the road. He witnessed this. The man and the child are walking down the road, and they were walking hand by hand. And the child knows that he is the child of the father, and he knows that his father loves him. And he rejoices in that, and he's happy with it. There is no uncertainty about it, but suddenly, as he's watching the story unfold, suddenly the father moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, holds him closely in his arm, kisses him, embraces him, shows him his love, and lays it upon him, his love, and then he puts him down again to go walking together. The child knew before that his father loved him, and he knew that he was his child, but oh, he says, the loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, that is the kind of thing. The Spirit bears witness without spirit that we are children of God, end quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when Jesus baptized a person with the Holy Spirit, the person is carried not only from doubt to belief, but to certainty and to awareness of the presence of the glory of God. The day of Pentecost shows us the outer power, the inner presence, and finally the external proclamation, verse 4. While they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I said this before, let me say it again. It's important to recognize that we're listening and, excuse me, that we're reading historical narrative. He's telling us what happened. He doesn't necessarily tell us what it means, what it means. And this, <laughs> if you've been around in any amount of time in churches, you know that this verse is one hot potato. It's been interpreted all kinds of different ways. And I believe caused a lot of division, unnecessary division and conflict within the body and the church of Christ. So, this is what we're going to do. Let me just take a five minute and just give you what the scripture has to say, what the whole Bible has to say quickly about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because this is what happened. Luke, excuse me, Acts chapter 1 says, receive, wait in Jerusalem, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're witnessing. What is baptism of the Holy Spirit? Clearly in Acts chapter 1, he says that's what they're waiting for. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was prophesied, remember, in the gospel accounts. John the Baptist said, I'm going to baptize you with water, but he is coming. Who's he? Jesus. Mostly when I ask those questions, it's just Jesus most of the time. You can just say Jesus. Probably right. He is coming, Jesus, and he will, and he will, Jesus will, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's coming. I'm prophesying. In Acts, we see the actual historical event take place, and in the other epistles, we'll see more of a theological understanding and teaching from the apostles. That's the way it works. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we study this together, but let me just refresh some of you weren't here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks all about the baptism of the Spirit. He says in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, and free. And we were all made to drink from one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Baptism then is, is, the, is the, what the Bible calls new birth, born again, born anew. The word baptism is a word that means to immerse. So, so it's all about us being immersed by Jesus with the Holy, or Jesus is the baptizer. The Holy Spirit is the element. 
And we are now identified, baptized into the body of Christ. We now have communion with him. We're identified with him at our salvation. And the baptism of the Spirit takes place at conversion. It's not this second experiential, subsequent, after salvation experience. All baptized, he says, into one body. All were made to drink of one spirit. It's in the aorist tense because Paul's looking to something that happened at a one-time event in the life of every believer. When it comes into our lives, we are are born from above, that we are, the Holy Spirit is is given to us and we become submerged into the body of Christ. It is the work of God bringing us into communion with him through the blood of Jesus. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians, if you're there, he says everyone received the Spirit. Everyone was baptized. The whole church, every Christian. So there's not those that are Christians that haven't been baptized and those that are not Christian. You know, he doesn't make the distinguishing between, are you're a Christian, you haven't been baptized, but you're a Christian, you have been baptized. He doesn't say that. He says all of us baptized into one body to drink of one spirit. Paul says any man that does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Jesus. Can't get any more simple than that. Romans chapter 8. Now, what we need to know, and you need to know as we go through the book of Acts, is there's a difference between baptism of the Spirit, that conversion experience, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It says they were baptized, they were filled. There is a difference. You need to know that. There's a difference between baptized and being filled with the Spirit. We're going to read in Acts chapter 2 here, and we're going to see in Acts chapter 9 that the Spirit filled people for service. Okay, they, they, were, they, were, they were filled for service. They were filled to speak the word of God boldly. They were filled for ministry. Okay, you're going to see the filling of the Spirit in many different places to Christians who have already been baptized by the Holy Spirit because the filling and the baptism are two different things. Ephesians 5, you know that passage. There's a filling of the Spirit. There's one, one baptism of the Spirit and one and many fillings of the Spirit, okay? It's very important that you understand that. Why is that necessary? Why is it necessary for us to be filled constantly with the Holy Spirit as believers? Because you're wicked. So am I. When the Holy Spirit says, don't do that, we're like, ah, maybe tomorrow, because today I want to do this. When the Holy Spirit says that, the Bible said we can quench the Holy Spirit, we can, we can um, grieve the Holy Spirit, we need fillings. I know I need a filling. Okay, I need to yield my life completely to the Holy Spirit and have total control of my life because I'm a sinner. And I still at times run to sin. So I need the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit power. I need to have the Holy Spirit filling so I can be transformed in the power of Jesus because my flesh still wants to do my thing. And maybe you're like, oh, I don't have that any problem. Well, then you're a liar and you got that problem. But we could talk about that later. So read all that. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, I, I just want to show you this, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, it says this. Paul writes to the Ephesian church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The tense, the verb tense there is be continually filled with the Spirit. Keep going back. Keep going filled. You've got you to keep replenishing. You've got to keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. And say, what does that look like? You just keep reading. Just keep reading. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Addressing each other with psalms and singing and praising God. 
giving thanks to God, that submitting to one another, reverence to Christ. Wives, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, submit to your husbands. Husbands, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Children, verse 6, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, obey your mom and dad. It's clear. That's what a spirit-filled life looks like. Okay, I don't mean to get sidetracked, but I just had it, you know. I'm not done, actually. So, what... One of the marks of being filled, which we will see over and over, is speaking the word boldly. That's what he said. Wait in Jerusalem. It should be no shock to us. Wait, you receive power for what? So you can go out and, and shop? No, so that you can be filled with power to be my witnesses to the world. Jesus was filled with power, and he proclaimed the gospel. It's the power. All right, let's talk about tongues for a minute. I'm going to wrap this up in two minutes. I'm going to talk about tongues. You can go online, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We preach through it. You can go look at it for yourself. But let me just tell you this. Tongues, the definition for tongues is, is, is glossalia. It, it means language. When you hear tongues in the Bible, it's the supernatural ability to speak, to pray, to sing in a language that was not previously known to you. Okay? There's a heavenly prayer language where people speak to the Lord. Some of you have that gift of speaking in tongues. You tell me, Lou, when I'm home and I'm praying and I'm, I'm singing and making melody in my heart to the Lord, I speak in tongues. Okay, good. There's also the missionary aspect of speaking in tongues, which we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 7. Look at that, Acts 2, 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They're all the same, but how is it that each one we hear in our own native language? There's, a, there's, a, there's I don't know in any other language, but there's a way in which God sometimes gives people the gift of speaking in tongues so that when I'm around people who have a different language in a foreign land possibly, we're declaring the, the mighty deeds of God in that language and they totally understand what I'm saying even though I may not understand what I'm saying. There's a heavenly language, there's a, there's a gospel message and the final one is there's a revelatory message of speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians again, chapter 14. God uses the gift of tongues to speak messages to the church. Turn there with me if you have a Bible. 1 Corinthians 14. This is probably the most abused part of the gift of tongues is the revelatory. I got a gift. I, I, got, I got a message. I want to speak in tongues. I want to speak it out loud. I want, I want to disrupt the service. I, I got something I want to say. I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I want to get this out. So that, that's kind of the most abused gift. Some people say tongues is abuse, so let's do away with it. Unfortunately, the Bible says the tongues exist. There are people who abuse the gift of teaching, administration, leadership. We don't get rid of those. So we just have to be biblical. That's my, my attempt is to be biblical about tongues. So there's, a, there's a chapter 14, chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm fired up. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 27. He says this, verse 26 even. When you come together, right, when you gather as a church, that's what Paul's talking about, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for their own happiness and joy. No, for building each other up. Verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let them be only two or, th- or at the most three in each turn. Take their turn and let someone interpret it. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So first of all, as you meet at the church, you need someone with the gift of interpretation so that we can all hear the message according to Paul. Obviously, if someone stands up and speaks in tongues and things are going on, no one knows what they're saying, there's going to be confusion. He says that people come into church and say, y'all crazy. We don't want to be the crazy people in Glenmont. Okay? And Paul gives two clear principles. He says, don't tell me you have to speak in a tongue and I just can't help it. 
You ever hear that? We're just speaking in tongues. We can't help it. It's like the music begins, you know, the church, and it's like Tongue Fest USA. You know, just everyone is like, and, and all kinds of people are speaking. No one knows what they're doing. Somebody got like a turkey call over here. You know, it's just, it's just madness. And people are saying like, well, you know, it should be interpreted. We don't even know what's going on. Like, oh, they're just excited. I'll give them that. They seem very excited. I'm okay with that. They might have had a couple of monster drinks on the way. We don't know what it was, but they're excited. People say, man, don't quench the spirit. They want to speak in tongues. Don't quench the spirit. My response is like, who do you think wrote two or three in an orderly fashion, let them interpret the spirit? I mean, he wrote that. I didn't write that. He said so. I mean, you know, I'm not the sharpest pencil, you know, there is, but if he writes, let two or three, and that's the Holy Spirit done in order, let them interpret, be silent if no one understands, he's not going to turn around and say, you need freedom and go do what you want. I mean, there's a contradiction, right? You know, he's not restricting us. The Holy Spirit's not restricting us and then telling us not to comply. That doesn't make sense. He said, there's no interpreter. The speaker will be silent in the church. Peter's like, uh, Paul's like, look, go home. If that's your language, man, that's cool. Some things we should do at home, some things we should do in public. Some things you do at home that I don't want to know about. You know what I mean? Don't do that in public. Keep it at home. That's good. And he says, you know, let them be, uh, you know, let them interpret it. So, you know, there's a language, not in, in Acts chapter 2, everyone knew, but there's a language that nobody understands. And here at King Chapel, we do, we gather the leaders, because Paul talks about leaders who protect the, the congregation, who guard against false doctrine. If you have a tongue and you have a message, grab one of us. We'd love to hear it. It could be God speaking to you through you to us. Thank goodness, I praise God, we don't have, you know, confusion in the church. We'd love to talk with you. Uh, we don't anticipate any future. It's never going to be like open mic tongue night at King's. I mean, it's not going to happen. Um, but if you have a tongue, we'll, we'll talk. Let's talk. I'm okay with that. I believe it's a gift for today. Uh, but it's not to cause confusion. It's not to cause chaos. And then the question is always, should everyone speak in the tongues? In Acts chapter 2, they all spoke in tongues. I mean, is it possible that everyone who is baptized in the Spirit needs to speak in tongues? Maybe you've heard that before. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, that that's not true. He said the same Spirit gives the gifts of tongues, gives the gifts of, of interpretation, gives the gifts of leadership. He says all these are empowered by the same Spirit who apportions, gives to each one individually as he wills. It's not your choice. It's God's choice. God chooses who will speak in tongues, who will not speak in tongues. It's clear. God's going to say, we need an administrator. I'm going to gift you for administration. God's going to say, I need leadership. We're going to gift you for leadership. Teaching, preaching. God decides what gifts he gives the body so the body can come together. Great analogy that Paul uses. Serving one another. One's the hand, one's the foot. We're all part of one body serving uh, you know, each other and, of course, on mission with Jesus. Some people have the gift of evangelism. So, you know, not everyone, Acts chapter 2 is not normative so that when everyone gets saved, everyone's got to speak in tongues. According to Acts 9, we'll get to that, Paul becomes a Christian converted from being a crazy terrorist. He has the gift of tongues, we know that, but he does not speak in tongues at his conversion. There's no record of it. And speaking in tongues, I hear this too. I just One last thing, I promise, I'll move on. They're so spiritual. They are so, look at them speaking in tongues. <laughs> the Corinthian church was a bunch of carnal, immature Christians who spoke in tongues. So we have to be careful. 
we can exercise our gifts and not be very mature. So it's not a sign. So does everyone speak in tongues? No. As far as we know, Jesus never spoke in tongues. Can you speak in tongues? Yes. Is it a gift? Yes. Is it a prayer language? Yes. Can you speak in tongues in another language so other people hear the gospel? Yes. Are we going to call confu- cause confusion in the church? No. Is there a baptism of the Holy Spirit outside of conversion? Absolutely not. And some will say, well, I was a Christian all these years, and I went to this church service, and, 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 and it was just unbelievable. I had such a sweeping emotion and power of the Holy Spirit. I say, amen. Either you weren't a Christian, you were just living a lie all those years, or you were a Christian, but you were grieving the Spirit and not listening to the Spirit, and that service, at that moment, God broke you down, you can turn from your sins, and, and, and God filled you with the Spirit. I'll go with that. But baptism of the Holy Spirit is a moment of conversion. Filling of the Spirit is continually. Okay, I'm done. Verse 9. I'm sorry. You got to know that. We're, so we're going to talk a lot about this throughout the book, okay? Verse 9. Well, you know what frustrates me? I know I said I'll move on. But one more thing. <laughs> what frustrates me, because we're going to get into this text. I'm just looking at the text. What frustrates me is... We debate about that when the issue has nothing to do with tongues. Acts chapter 2 is not about who speaks in tongues. Acts chapter 2 is about the power of the Holy Spirit on mission with Jesus. All that other stuff is sidelined. Verse 9. Sorry. Protheus, Medes, Elamites, they're all residents of Mesopotamia. These are all the people that heard in their own language Jesus. Uh, Pontius and Asia, uh, Phrygia. Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, God bless you, are belonging to the Serenes, a visitor from Rome, both Jew and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling it in our own tongues the mighty works of God. He says, under every nation, everyone was there. If you look at a map, you got Iran, Turkey, North Africa, Crete, Rome, Arabia, Egypt, Middle East, Israel, all these people coming together. God waits for them in one room and fills them with the Holy Spirit, sends them out in the power and the presence of him and and language, although a barrier becomes no barrier, location, they're going to all over the world with the gospel, okay? They're going to be missionaries. Now, in your Bibles, if, if you're studying with me and, and you like word studies, the, the, the word, the mighty works of God, the mighty works of God, may, may galaios, only here in the New Testament, you won't see that word anywhere else in the New Testament, but many times in the Old Testament, in what they call the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the reason why I bring that up, it's really important, because in Deuteronomy and Psalms, some other places in the Old Testament, whenever you see that word spoken about, it's speaking about the deliverance of God, God delivering Israel from Egypt, the mighty act of God separating the Red Sea, delivering people, the Israel people, the children of God, out of uh, Egypt through the Red Sea and bringing them safely and delivering them from tyranny, from, from slavery of Egypt. And here in the New Testament, it's just not the mighty deeds in, 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 in general, but in particular. It's about the deliverance, about God becoming man and delivering his people from sin, death, and hell, from the oppression of sin, from, from the penalty of death. They were preaching the gospel. They were passionately, joyfully teaching and preaching the mighty salvation of God. Some say, man, they were drunk. Verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed. What does this mean? Others say, ah, they're filled with new wine. They were fearless. They were joyful. Not, not the stupid, joyful, fearless drunk. I could do anything, you know what I mean? Give me that microphone. Let me sing karaoke. No, you stink. Sit down. You're like, you know, what are you doing? 
It, it, was the, it was the fullness of the Spirit. They didn't care what other people thought. They didn't care what other people said. They were declaring the mighty deeds of acts, the mighty acts of God, salvation. They weren't the drunk with the, with the you know, underwear on his head with a lampshade, singing karaoke really bad, bad, but they were fearless. They were joyful. They didn't care what other people said. There's intelligent joy and happiness, and there's you know, stupid joy and happiness. This tongues led them to declare with joy and fearlessness the things of God. And unfortunately, not everybody received it. Some were mockers, they said. Some received Jesus. Some said they were mocking. They're crazy. And here's the big picture I want you to walk away with this morning. The Holy Spirit is absolutely and fully, totally on mission. That when the Spirit of God came down, language and location got out of the way, and Jesus' people were filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaiming the gospel to turn from sin, to trust in Jesus. It's not about tongues. It's about people everywhere need to hear about the gospel. And the work of the Holy Spirit, even today, is setting us on fire with his power, unleashing us into the world to declare Jesus Christ is God. He died. He rose from the grave. He's forgiving people. He's saving people. He's loving people. He's pursuing people. Delivering them from sin and hell. And someday Jesus will come again. He will judge the living and the dead. Turn from your sins, repent, and trust Jesus. And, and, and this message has to get out. And the question is, King Chapel, will you join the work of Christ on mission? Will you join him? Are you looking for opportunities to speak, to love, to share, to talk to people about Jesus? Overcoming barriers that may get in the way. So they can receive him and love him and become part of his family. That's what the book of Acts is all about. That's what Acts chapter 2 is all about. He wants to work through you and you and you and me as he did for thousands of years. Do you know in Genesis 11, the people of the world had one language. I think it was Nathan who preached, right, on Babel. They gathered together to try to build a tower, Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 says, come, let us build ourselves a tower. Take it to the top of the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. There was one language at that time. They all got together, and, and in defiance and pride against God, they said, let us build this tower and make a name for ourselves. And the Lord said, ha, look down and laugh. They're one people. They have one language, he says. Nothing that they propose to do will, will be impossible to them. Let us go down. God talking to Father, Son, and Spirit and confused their language so that they may not understand speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth <laughs> and the name is called Babel because the Lord confused their language. Also now their language is confused. No one understands what anybody's saying. You see how Pentecost is the reversal of that judgment? God's judgment at Babel dispersed the people but the blessing and the outpouring of the Spirit brought people together. At Babel, the people were unable to understand each other, but at Pentecost, they spoke everyone's language and everyone understood the gospel. The Tower of Babel was a scheme designed to praise and to worship themselves. When the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, it was to the praise and the glory of Jesus. The building of Babel was an act of rebellion, but Pentecost was an act of humble submission to God. Now, we're going to close, but I want to tell you one thing. Okay, stay with me. Two minutes is very important. Pentecost was not only a time of first fruits, but Pentecost was a time that the Israel people got together and they celebrated the giving of the law. Now the law, 
is not just the commands of God. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. The law is about his covenantal relationship with them. It's about relationships. And God met with Moses and gave him the law as, as part of the covenant with them to have relationship with them. Now, during the time of Jesus' ministry, the day of Pentecost, as I said, was a celebration of the law. Now, both these cases, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and Pentecost, have some very similarities and some differences. In both cases, cases Mount Sinai and the Pentecost, there was fire, there was quake, there was, there was wind. In both cases, both the giving of the law and the Pentecost, there was communication. The law, of course, God spoke and Moses to Moses to give the, the law to his people. At Pentecost, people spoke the gospel and communicated the word of God as mighty deeds. On Mount Sinai, there was fire, but people were afraid. And if you read that, you'll see that people go to Moses and say, I'm not going up there. God's up there. Fire came down. I'm not going. You have to mediate for us. You be our substitute. You be our mediation. You go up and hear what God has to say because we're not going. We're not going. Moses even prayed for them when they sinned as a mediator before God. But in Acts chapter 2, the fire comes down on every believer. And the word of the law was not preached, but the word of the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is a greater Moses. Jesus is a better and greater Moses. Jesus is a greater and better mediator. Jesus is a greater and better substitute. He's the ultimate mediator. When we sin, he doesn't just pray, but he dies for us. He is our final substitute. He is our ultimate mediator. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil, that that inner place where the Shekinah glory came down, once a year was torn in two was torn into, signifying the presence of God can come into your life. So as the band comes up, don't be a mocker. Jesus has interceded. He's the only interceder. He's the only substitute. He's the only mediator that can save you from yourself, from your sin. He's the only one speaking from the outside, I love you. I'll receive you. I'll accept you as my own. You will be eternally forgiven and accepted. Come into my presence. Receive my power to live a life changed, to live a life on mission for the sake of the gospel. If you have never responded to that call, Jesus is alive today. Turn to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Run to Jesus. Love Jesus. He is the substitute, and he is the only mediator between God and man. You're, we're going to respond, and I, my, uh, my prayer is that you respond in that way and trust to Jesus. Talk to me afterward. I'd love to talk with you. But here is a challenge for Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus, and the Bible says people who are filled with the Holy Spirit are sent on mission, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Is to you being filled with the Holy Spirit is giving back the change that the cash lady gave you that was, you know, $2 more than you're supposed to have. Let me give it back. Am I saying that's not bad? But being filled with the Holy Spirit is living on mission with Jesus. Acts chapter 2. So if that's not the case, we need to repent of our sins. We need to get on mission. We need to get on board. Ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit so we can declare his mighty deeds of the great salvation that he has provided. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, not only for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but then empowering us with your spirit so that the world can know through the testimony, the declaration, the demonstration of the gospel. It is not good advice. It is good news. He has died. He has risen. He is coming back again. Father, we pray that you would give us a fresh new 
fullness of the Spirit so that we can live on mission, sharing with our neighbors and our friends and, and our coworkers and students. And Lord, that we would live on mission with Jesus, not shrinking back in fear, but declaring the good news of Christ and all that he has done in, in our salvation and our deliverance. Lord, may we not, may we not uh, respond to that call and that fullness of your spirit. Lord, I pray, we pray for those who may not know you today that they would turn to Christ and respond in worship of the one true king and mediator and his name is Jesus. And it's his name we pray, amen.